The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg, and I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And today, we've got a very special guest. We have the great, one of the great grandnieces of Thomas Edison, Sarah Miller Caldecutt, author of mid, uh, recent book Midnight Lunch and an earlier book, uh, co-author of an earlier book called Innovate Like, like Edison. One of the things that's uh, so interesting is that, you know, as in higher education, we, we see everything that's happening around us and it's all so changing and, um, and we're seeing the shift from mastery of static knowledge to innovating and collaborating in a rapidly changing environment. And sometimes we see that as, as some as a new phenomenon. And 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 yet your argument is that uh, we've got really a pretty terrific exemplar in an innovator and collaborator in in uh, in Thomas Edison. Yes, you know Edison really valued different types of expertise. He realized that he couldn't master every domain of science, so he wanted to have people around him that had different kinds of knowledge than he did. And so in that respect, he created a really fascinating um, you know, set of laboratories over the course of his career uh, where people could have a rich dialogue and, and share their knowledge, share their expertise, and I think importantly, see patterns. So yeah. as we think about, you know, classroom learning versus perhaps experiential learning or um, learning that might happen in a different way versus a teacher kind of teaching his or her classroom a particular area of knowledge, I think we, we can look at Edison as someone who really valued that experiential dynamic. Uh, so his laboratories were really an example of that. Yeah. And and yeah, the, this is in certain way you know, the, a lot has been made of the the movie Back to the Future. But in many ways, we're here. We're going back to the future to look back to these examples to to move ahead. And and we want to dig into some of the uh, some of the points that you make in these books. But um, you've you've been a marketing executive bef- before what you're doing now. You worked at Unilever, Quaker Oats, and now you're an innovation thought leader with with books like the ones we've mentioned. But as if we hop into the time machine, um, just curious, what kinds of early experiences have led to your current career path? 
Well, I learned that I was a great-grandniece of Thomas Edison when I was in grade school. And the connection absolutely fascinated me. Um, I really kind of turned on my radar for my entire school life, uh, grade school, middle school, high school, and into college, looking at how to create new things. What does it take to build something that's successful, that people will want to buy? How do you break through and create new industries, which is something that Edison did multiple times. So I think one of those early experiences was just learning about my family's relationship to Thomas Edison. A second thing that really launched my interest in innovating in the business world were some of my early experiences at the Quaker Oats Company. Uh, I was working uh, on a, a foods business and was asked to work with a team of people to come up with an entirely uh, new concept for an existing brand. So taking something that already was out in the marketplace and completely reconceiving it, reimagining it. And in that process, I learned about the power of imagination and certainly the power of working with a team of people who could contribute different facets and different pieces of the pie, if you will, to this uh, reconceptualizing, reinventing process. So that experience uh, was perhaps one of the most formative, uh, thinking about uh, an experiential uh, learning activity uh, in a corporate environment, something that kind of fell outside the lines, if you will, from just analyzing data and, um, you know, completing tasks. It was a much more conceptual type of endeavor and really excited me to look at the world of innovation inside companies and how we can do it more smoothly, how we can do it more readily, and how we can inspire people to, to stay the course on something that can often be quite challenging. Yeah, so nice. that was a, a second experience. Yeah, and and um, I'm wondering back in those early days in grade school. So you found out, and I got how did that show up in elementary school or high school? What 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 was sort of you were on the lookout, but you know what was what was different for you? Well, I think at times I would just allow my thoughts to drift to, well, if Edison was here and he was given this challenge or problem, how might he approach it? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things he might examine? How could he look at this problem from a different angle? So I would just call those questions into my mind. I can't say that it had a particular outcome or that there was a particular project that I endeavored, but it was just more of a a mindset, uh, a way of thinking, is there another angle to tackling this? Am Am I taking the easy path or can I challenge myself to look at different options and not just something that's been put here on my desk or laid out in the textbook or uh, put within the teacher's request for an answer to a question. So I started uh, pushing some of those boundaries in in how I would respond on essays or how I might do extra credit work (laughs) in school, things like that. Yeah, and and you know, in this this program, where it, uh, because of the book, a whole new engineer, and we're very interested in how people come by their unleashing experiences. You've had the experience of working in large uh, companies and stable environments, and and then kind of walking away from that um, and into becoming a thought leader and a book author. What um, uh, you know, what what experiences or or people in your life kind of enabled you to kind of have the courage to go and do that? 
Well, I think it was actually a series of experiences. One of the things that I found really fascinating was the growth in innovation capability, uh, the growth in research and development that occurred not only in Edison's time, but for the successive 70, 80 years uh, Mm. out from Edison's first laboratories. Uh, He really created a way for the United States and uh, other companies who are doing uh, innovation work to profit from science and innovation. Uh, I wanted to examine the level of competitiveness of our nation uh, now as you know as we look into the future in the digital age are we still uh, innovation leaders on a global basis so going back to y2k if you remember that in 1999 yep. we had a whole a new movement to to offshore and to outsource different types of it capability and that then extended out into manufacturing and other areas uh, we moved into the bursting of the tech bubble in 2000 uh, we had the challenges of september 11th in 2001 and and then the Iraq War in 2003, and uh, the recession that then followed that, and uh, the ascendancy of China, which really became a major global issue in terms of growth uh, and investment potential for the U.S. as a nation. So the sequence of events from 99 through into 03 made me realize that we sort of were taking our eye off innovation as a central conversation of our country. Uh, We were really moving toward counterterrorism, homeland security, areas of uh, risk that we wanted to moderate. So I decided to go back and look at Edison's work in 04, right after that, that sequence of years was complete, because I was concerned about the innovation competitiveness of our country. I think one of the things Edison did was to inspire people to be innovators, to actually bring some of that capability into their own sphere, into their own realm. And I think we, we need that today. So really looking at um, what I think we all thought was going to be a great launch to the 21st century, those early years were going to be exciting. They were going to be dynamic. The Internet was growing. We had search engines and browsers. Um, but in fact, those early years of the new millennium were consumed with uh, many different types of conversations that took us away from innovation. So that's what really spurred me okay. to um, go into Edison's life and work and examine it in a new way. Great. And so... Um and then as a, you know, as, you know, and you mentioned that you found out in grade school that you were a great grandniece. Um, uh, he died in 1931, so it's pretty clear you never m- met him, but there must yeah, be fam- right. <laughs> family stories um, that are handed down from generation to generation. Are, are there such stories? And if, if there are, what uh, what's a favorite one of yours? Well, one of my favorites is that my great cousin, Nancy, uh, who passed away in 2006, actually got married in Thomas Edison's home. And I thought that was really extraordinary. This was his home in Glenmont, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, just a few blocks away from his West Orange laboratory. And the Glenmont uh, property is, is still uh, with us today. It is still a, a national landmark. You can tour uh, Edison's home and, and see how he lived uh, I, I think it's amazing that my cousin Nancy was married there and actually lived there during World War I. 
So it was a very difficult economic time. Um, she also started her family when she was living in Glenmont and uh, became friends with Henry Ford. Her birth date and Henry Ford's birth date are identical. Mm. And so Henry Ford would send her telegrams on her birthday. And there are several pictures in our family archives, and um, I think there's some that are publicly available as well, of my cousin Nancy with Henry Ford on their joint birthday, uh, with birthday cake and the whole thing. So uh, those are some of the really fascinating stories of uh, the Edison connection in, in my family. Nice. Yeah, and thanks for sharing sharing that story. Now we have a lot of myths about Edison. So there's a sense of, uh, and I think, and and I think your books do a nice job of dispelling them. But you know, so one of them is this idea that he was kind of this lone inventor by himself, and another which is addressed in your second book. And another one is this idea of kind of he was kind of unsystematic in his uh, exploration of uh, design space for things, and and I guess the invention of the incandescent bulb is you know the the number of failures there is used as, as the evidence for that. But um, uh, what's, your, what's your take on some of these some of these things that these stories that are told around Edison these days? Well, you're right. There are myths that uh, continue to float around and become part of our popular lore or popular culture. And certainly, one of them is uh, Edison as the lone inventor. And this is where we kind of, you know, connect Edison into the American myth of the entrepreneur, right? Working alone in their attic or their basement or their garage and uh, taking all their extra hours to uh, investigate and explore new areas uh, and new ideas. Edison, actually, from the time he was a teenager, worked in collaboration with others. Uh, when he was working in Newark, New Jersey, uh, and also in Boston, he rented uh, small laboratory spaces, and he would invite people to come in and actually help him prototype some of the things that he was working on. Uh, he also encouraged others to bring their ideas uh, so that, that other people could examine the work that they were doing and there could be some you know, collaborative activity around the types of problems that uh, others were solving. So this was Edison's way of kind of creating his network, uh, creating a connection between other inventors in the geographies where he lived um, and, and sharing his thinking uh, with this small community. So this was how Edison realized that, in fact, his own ideas could not really go all the way out to market. He needed other people to comment, to weigh in, to iterate with him, and create a better outcome. So uh, we can look back historically and see Edison really working collaboratively from the very beginning. And this stretched through into his development of the Menlo Park Lab. Uh, He created workspaces for small teams uh, and also very large workspaces for for many people to be working simultaneously. But this was um, very strong evidence of uh, the type of collaborative uh, work that Edison most prized. So I think this notion of being a lone inventor is is one of those myths that you've uh, that you've mentioned. The second one, um, this notion of being unsystematic, quote unquote. I think this is also a myth, in as much as Edison really experimented based on a unique question 
that he was pursuing an answer to. So as we look at the incandescent electric light, uh, we see that over 20 scientists had pursued uh, conquering incandescence for more than 40 years um, prior to Edison's even endeavoring all of these experiments. So uh, he was looking at the outcomes that these other scientists had, had yielded in their papers uh, and their work, and he wanted to ensure that he would not duplicate uh, their findings because he, he didn't want to retread the same ground. Yes. So as a result of that, uh, he asked a unique question. Uh, his predecessors essentially had asked, uh, what will burn the longest? If I want something to uh, burn and yield heat and light, which is the definition of incandescence, um, these scientists wanted to know what will burn the longest. And that was how they pursued their experimentation and their work. Edison actually asked a different question, a unique question, which was, how do substances burn? So when we look at all the different compounds that Edison was experimenting with, you know, things as unique as boar bristles or human hair or feathers, hemp fiber, bark, and tar, um, it looks unsystematic to us. But in fact, he had created hypotheses around this notion of burning and how substances burn. So ultimately, he found a substance that burned evenly. Yes. And the evenness of burning was actually the key. So to our modern eye, and not knowing some of this context, we might say, wow, I mean, he was wasting a lot of time. Why did he look so broadly at all these different compounds when surely they were not the answer? It's because he wanted to understand the properties of burning first. So to me, this is um, sort of a classic Edisonian example of some of the ways that he was thinking differently than how we might think. Uh, logically, we, we might begin from logic and say, well, what will burn the longest, and sort of start there and not actually yield that breakthrough outcome. So uh, Edison, I yeah. think, was actually more systematic than we might give him credit for. Well, and I, and I, and I think if you, in, in your books, document this, and, and there was a strong, actually a fairly strong decomposition of the things that needed to be done in, in that example, which was also a key to the Wright brothers and early, or other yeah. early successful inventors. So yeah. we've got to take a little bit of a break. I want to come back and, and, and visit this. And, and visit the sense that, you know, so Edison, that's a long time ago. 1931 was when he passed away. So, you know, to what extent uh, should, should we be going back to the future? To what extent is his, are his uh, examples still relevant to us? Um, this is Big Beacon uh, Radio with our special guest, Sarah Miller Caldecott, great-grandniece of Thomas Edison. And when we come back, we're going to explore the relevance of, of his lessons for today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, 
Call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with Dave Goldberg. And we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at www.wholenewengineer.org. And coming back with me is our guest, uh, Sarah Miller-Caldicott, uh, a great-grandniece of Thomas Edison. And, and Sarah, in our last segment, we were, uh, we were talking about some of the – the, the ways that Edison liked to work and some of the ways that his, the things that we think about him are actually not actually the case. But I guess the, the bigger question is, okay, this is a long time ago. We're talking about the middle of the 1800s to um, the early part of the 20th century. It's the opening moments of the 21st century. What, what makes Edison relevant uh, today? Well, I think there are a couple things. A lot of what we're really seeking today is how to navigate this world of disruptive innovation that we're seeing. Um, we've got new business models uh, that are coming forward. Uh, we see the, the dominance of uh, platforms like Amazon or eBay, um, you know, Uber, Pandora. There are so many new ways of going to market and ways of capturing customers via technology that uh, we need to be reexamining um, our, our ways of doing business, uh, how we organize as businesses. Uh, our technology era is really demanding this. So if we go back in time, we can see that Edison was thinking disruptively. He was a disruptive innovator. There are six industries that Edison pioneered in his lifetime all of which still exist today, and in fact, all of which are really present um, on your smartphone. So in a way, we can see these six technologies um, put forward to us almost like a convergent platform uh, that we use uh, on a daily basis. Uh, recorded sound, document duplication, electrical power and light, uh, motion pictures, uh, battery technology. These are some of the things that Edison pioneered in his lifetime that um, we really can't do without now. Yes. Yeah. No, and it, it's remarkable the number of things that uh, he had his hand in, actual thing, you know, things and inventions that uh, we use today in, in one form or another. And, and, in, your, and in your first um, book with uh, Michael Gelb, you, you explored uh, the book Innovate Like Edison. You explored five competencies, and these were more from the perspective of an individual in your, in your latest uh, book, Midnight Lunch, explores the more collaborative team aspects of his, of his method. But if, if you were to sort of uh, look back at, at 
uh, at, at your first book and and highlight uh, a competency or two that is just super duper important uh, for us here in the 21st. I guess they're all important, but if you were to pick one or two to focus on um, in our conversation here today, what w- what would you call out? Well, certainly one would be the second competency of innovation, as I describe it, uh, kaleidoscopic thinking. Uh, I was talking about the fact that Edison was able to think disruptively, uh, move beyond logic, and really create new context for the way he was thinking and the way his employees were thinking. So this is really what kaleidoscopic thinking embodies. Um, There are two pieces inside of that competency that I think uh, are really powerful. Um, I work with executives on on these particular examples, and I've seen tremendous results. Um, Analogical thinking is one of them, which actually helps uh, executives move out of this logic frame and, and helps us all kind of really tap how our brain is wired to think. The mind likes to see likeness. And so this is why we get into ruts, creative ruts. Analogical thinking uh, has us take two different concepts, concepts that seem very unlike each other, and actually try to see how they are similar. So it's a way of kind of reprogramming um, our, our sense of order and, and logic and have us move out into a more fantastical frame, if you will. Yes. Edison used analogical thinking as he was inventing the, the phonograph, uh, the battery, the movies. Uh, it was a very powerful tool for him. Uh, he also invented the first electric circuit this way, uh, comparing telegraphy and electricity. So analogical thinking is one of the extraordinary tools, I think, that that we could um, look to today for our own individual uh, enrichment. Another one is science fiction writing. Edison loved science fiction. He loved to read science fiction, particularly Jules Verne and other authors of that era. Uh, He wanted to actually write stories and think about ways of imagining uh, a future that looked different than the present. So these fantastical stories he would write uh, allowed him to kind of, again, unshackle his logical mind and uh, engage people in dialogue about new possibilities and new ways of thinking. So that would be another uh, piece of the kaleidoscopic thinking frame. Well, and that's interesting. Last week we we did a show on uh, on, uh, a a great thinker of our time, John H. Holland, who's uh, known for his work in complexity science and complexity. Uh, complex systems yeah. and evolutionary computation, and and the point was brought up of how how John was always reaching for for an analogies and metaphors and other fields. So it seems like that that's operational. But another way in which the conversation last week sort of reminds me of our our conversation today, and thinking about uh, the books that you've written, is the playfulness and the the sense of there there was serious what we now call serious play. There's a sense of serious Seriousness, but also playfulness that was that was in Edison. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about his approach to balancing those two things? You know, Edison was very playful, and he was known as a practical joker. Uh, he loved to sort of play little little gags on some of his employees, and uh, one of his favorite was actually to make fake cigars. 
<laughs> he, he loved cigars. Um, he loved to relax by smoking cigars. And uh, one day he realized that, that someone must have been breaking in to his favorite cigar stash. So he actually took some tobacco leaves and hand-rolled them with barber clippings, little clippings of hair that he actually just got from a, from a local shop and kind of planted these in different places in the lab. And uh, one day he actually reached into uh, a stash that he thought was his and realized after spitting out some of this awful-tasting tobacco that he had, you know, smoked one of his own fake cigars. Fake so cigars. this is, uh, was his way of trying to catch the culprit of who was, was taking his own stuff but uh, ended up uh, fooling himself. So everyone in the lab had a great laugh over that. Um, he would do things like apply for a job at his own lab and, and see if he could get a job. <laughs> um, undercover boss to, of, uh, yeah, undercover of the, boss, the like early that. 1900s, yeah. Definitely. So these were ways of keeping things light. Um, he, he wanted people to uh, have a sense of levity about their work so that they could, they could laugh and kind of kick back a little bit uh, and, and refresh their minds um, in the midst of the day when they were working very diligently on um, complex problems. So he led the way on that. And um, he dressed very casually in, in various instances. Um, he liked to go to trade shows and, and go overseas to see what other people were working on. Um, so he wasn't in the lab all the time. And I think a sense of uh, exploration, uh, we, could, we could count as, as sort of a playfulness. Um, let's see what's going on in photography in Europe. You know, let's go yeah. over and talk to some of the photographers who are breaking new ground in what it means to take an image and put it into a static frame uh, and, and have it uh, you know, not lose its integrity over time. Uh, he was very interested in different uh, aspects of what the Royal Academy of Science was doing uh, and traveled to England uh, on many occasions. So he, he had a sense of playfulness and also a sense of exploration. Uh, I think those qualities were, were very uh, important to his culture and to how people were successful in his organization. Well, and and the, the under the competency that in in um, the book you call full spectrum engagement is there, there were all these opposites: intensity and relaxation, seriousness, playfulness, sharing, protecting, complexity, simplicity, solitude, and team. And so, usually, you know, the, kind of a normal human being sort of has a tendency to show up on one side or the other and has kind of a normal a normal pattern. But there's a there's kind of almost a shifting personality that's kind of under the hood of of an innovator like this. Definitely. And I think, you know, part of what we can learn today is thinking about this spectrum of our own capability, mm. uh, taping, taking seriousness and playfulness. You know, how often are we playful as adults? Do we kind of lock that out of our lives? Um, you know, sharing and protecting is a very important opposite today when we think about intellectual property. Um, do we want to protect all the intellectual property that our organization might generate, or do we want to have some of it that we actually share and, and think about uh, you know, putting out into a crowdsourced environment? Yeah. Um, do, do you have to trademark or, or patent you know, all the things that come forward from your organization? So that is a very um, relevant 
opposite, I think, when we look at today's world and, and the digital complexities that, uh, that we're navigating now. Yeah, and, and and I think that you know, so you're talking about innovation and the whole op- open innovation movement versus companies having very strong uh, patent claims and and protecting them vigorously uh, is 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 very much a part of our times. But I want to turn to your latest work um, uh, about uh, Edison's approach to collaboration called Midnight Lunch, and I love the title. But uh, you know, tell our audience what's what's the connection between a midnight lunch and Edison's approach to collaboration. Well, Midnight Lunch was a a unique window of time uh, that Edison spent collaborating with other employees in the laboratory. And one of the extraordinary things about a Midnight Lunch is that it would take place uh, spontaneously. It is not something that was planned. Uh, Edison would return to the laboratory periodically at 7 o'clock after dinner, and he would check on his own experiments and then talk with other people who might be in the lab also staying late. And he would have each of them, uh, some you know, eight, nine, or ten people, share their experiments with each other and as well trade notebooks with each other so that people could actually read mm. what the assumptions were, what the hypotheses were, uh, you know, what they were trying to accomplish with their experiments. And they'd have dialogue for about two hours uh, around the various themes that were being explored in these experiments. Part of what came forward um, were new patterns, uh, sort of like the analogical thinking. You, you see things that are unlike, maybe different than your area of expertise, but uh, when you're looking at someone else's work, you're able to look at it freshly. So for two hours, this dialogue uh, was very powerful. Um, At about 9 o'clock, Edison would order in food for everyone from a local uh, tavern. And they'd have sandwiches and desserts and beverages uh, for about an hour. They'd tell stories, uh, share things about their personal lives, sometimes sing songs. And this is a confirmed fact. <laughs> they would get kind of crazy and, and silly and, and sing songs. Yes. Um, and just kind of get to know each other as people. Uh, and then around 10 o'clock, they'd roll up their sleeves again and, and go back and um, you know, probe further on some of the problems that they'd been examining. Nice. So these five-hour sessions were called Midnight Lunches, and um, they created a very unique sense of bondedness. Um, you know, having employees move uh, into a collegial frame of mind where they really could rely on other people, they could ask questions, um, and not just feel like they were kind of alone in their own area of endeavor. Uh, they were able to cr- create new networks with other people in the lab. Yeah, no, I'm hearing a lot of good things under the hood of the midnight lunch. I'm hearing so this kind of, this the sharing of of the notebooks and really listening and and diving into what the other person how the other person sees the issues sounds really powerful and and uh, and again you bring in the, the the notion of a relaxed environment from the usual hustle and bustle of the workday. So there's there's lots of good stuff happening in in the midnight lunch. But I'm also hearing kind of I'm hearing sort of echoes or I, actually I'm hearing. What it's a pre-echo of of uh, things like uh, are, that Dan Pink writes about in, in Drive and Edward DC talks about in self-determination theory. This idea that um, about intrinsic motivation and 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 the kinds of the kinds of uh, practices that you can set up to sort of catalyze that. It sounds like uh, it sounds sounds like a FedEx what what we now call a FedEx day, where you sort of absolutely eh, it's not quite that, but it but, but the same idea that it's after hours and there's a kind of a time frame in which something good is supposed to happen. 
Yes, and and it was very motivating to people to have Edison present for these sessions because they knew they were going to really get a dose of that disruptive thinking, right? They were really going to have an opportunity to um, sit at the foot of the master, if you will, and, and kind of hear how he would approach a problem. So even just experiencing that gave people more freedom to begin exercising that same kind of uh, boundary-pushing activity in their daily work. So it was a way of um, helping to motivate people to uh, think in new ways and, and kind of clone that across the culture. Nice. Yeah. No, that's really, that's really awesome. And, and so in this book, you make the distinction, uh, and we've got a couple of minutes till we need to take another break, but uh, you make the distinguish, you, you make the distinction between this form of collaboration as true collaboration from other kinds. What's, what's, what's that distinction about? Well, for Edison, part of collaboration was discovery learning this experience of learning where you are with other people, you, you are not an expert in every single aspect of, of the work that you're doing um, yourself, but you can leverage the capabilities of others in the collaboration itself to build new knowledge um, for within your own self and then actually expand the knowledge capability of the entire group. So with this acceleration effect, this expansion effect that Edison felt was part of true collaboration. Um, you know, I think a lot of the collaboration that we experience is task-oriented. Okay, so here's your part of the project. Now you go and do that, and I will do my part of the project, and then we'll connect again in 30 days, and we'll see how we're doing. Um, it's sort of like a baton passing, uh, I'll do my part and then you do your part. Uh, and, and this is kind of the sort of efficiency model, if you will, that we yes. often have had a lot of experience with in organizations or on project teams. Uh, so sometimes that discovery piece is lacking. What are the new things that we want to strive to learn? What are the new capacities that we need to bring on board within our our team here? Rather than how much money do we have? What is the task at hand? Can we boil this down to individual tasks that we can each do? So certainly, in true collaboration, you know, there were tasks that needed to be completed. There were things that people had to contribute to make the project successful as, as time progressed. But what Edison insisted was, must be present was this notion of discovery. So I think that's where the true collaboration piece, um, you know, offers us a different lens than simply working in a task-oriented, time-bound way. Yeah, and I and I want to explore this some more in the the next uh, uh, segment. Uh, you know, what were some of the critical elements of this true collaboration, as well as what is uh, what are these things? Both his individual approach, his individual approach towards innovation, and this collaborative approach. What does what does that mean for for education going forward? And so, um, this is Big Beacon Radio with uh, special guest Sarah Miller Caldicott. In the next segment, we want to uh, explore more about true collaboration and, and what this all means for higher education. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? 
Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at your institution at www.3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our, our guest, uh, great-grandniece of Thomas Edison, Sarah Miller Caldecott. And, and we were talking about um, this notion of true collaboration and and the ways in which, and, and, and Sarah, you were saying how uh, it wasn't just teamwork and being efficient, but it was also a sense of of uh, mutual discovery, and and uh, it didn't sound like there was an autocrat leading it. It sounded like uh, kind of an emergent process among the the band of of uh, discoverers. And and you flesh this out in in four four phases in Midnight um, Lunch and. If you were to pull and and uh, if we had time, we'd go through all of them. But if we were to pull out, say, you know, one or two of the key lessons of midnight lunch for modern day collaborators, uh, what would those be? Well, I think one of the first ones is the notion of <clears throat> developing collaboration capacity, and and that's really what these midnight lunches were doing: taking mm. small teams of people and having them go through a process of very deep communication and very deep exchange. Um, small teams is a, a type of structure that we can work with today. We can, in fact, insist upon it. We can insist that whatever effort we might be undertaking, you know, not exceed eight or nine people. You know, sometimes we want to start with 15 people, 20 people, even 50 people. And right from the get-go, those become unwieldy structures where that discovery learning process I talked about is very difficult. Um, people have a difficult time exchanging their views uh, you know, over a longer period of time. Um, they get bogged down in the complexities of communication or even uh, finding time when, when everyone is free, <clears throat> everyone is yeah. available. Pardon me, to speak. So uh, having the small team structure is something that Edison found very valuable in a collaborative frame. He wanted his teams to be able to um, work uh, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, but also be able to stitch some of his teams together. You know, people who were working at, at manufacturing locations. He wanted to be able to knit them together with teams at the laboratory. 
So this collaboration ethos that he created with small teams allowed him to do that in a unique way. Well, so and I was struck by I was struck. Crew. Yeah, I was struck that you know the teams were as small as as two, and the what I think the uh, incandescence team was about eight. But this 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 idea that they were the you know two to eight or nine something like that not 50 not 50 like you're yeah, saying correct. and i was I, that struck me because i, I remember uh, uh, one of my former students went off and was employee number 7 at google and he came back and gave a talk at illinois and he said he he just came in and he said the first thing he said was uh, that pairs are 10x more productive in an entrepreneurial startup or an innovative startup than a single yeah. individual, and 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 you can do some calculations around that. Is that even possible? It is possible, and it actually doesn't. To get 10x doesn't really require that much more productivity in a situation like that. But it just seems that that these practices, uh, there is practices of pairwise program, agile, agile programming practices are small teams like this. So it seems like yeah. the, there's a lot of a lot of this small team kind of talk going around, and, sure. and not no, just yeah, talk, practice. practice going around. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a great example of uh, you know some of the documentation that's been brought forward around you know using very small uh, pairings of people, uh, two and three persons, to actually you know break through and create greater insight and acceleration in problem solving. Uh, so I think this is what Edison saw in in this process. So definitely important, um, you know, wherever we are in our project endeavors to, to look at that small team as an environment that we want to cultivate. Uh, we want to create the capacity for these small teams to exist and that leveraging of the discovery capability uh, to really be first and foremost. And and you call and and in the in that section you call it out. It's essentially the teams had to be. And I was just looking at my notes here. Collegial and diverse. So the diversity was uh, sometimes a functional diversity: a glass blower versus a mathematician versus a, a master experimenter. Somebody bringing some really needed skill set to the table. But there were no there were no boo birds on the team. They 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 either they got along or they weren't on the team. Is, is the way I read Yes. I mean, I think, you know, you, you could have diverse personalities and certainly diverse capability. Edison insisted that his teams have unique uh, qualification in terms of background. He didn't want to just have all experts working together on a particular challenge. I don't know that Edison actually could have uh, discovered incandescence in the way that he did uh, or solved that challenge the way that he did if he'd had a bunch of uh, experts on, on material science, for example, all pulled together. It was important that there be other disciplines present because, again, the mental constructs uh, and the contextual development of the thinking, uh, the way the problems were, were brought forward, the way uh, the uh, experimentation took place, did not follow any one particular discipline. And so it creates a sense of neutrality as you're beginning. Mm. No one particular uh, discipline kind of wins the day right from the beginning. Um, It isn't about who's been there the longest or who has the biggest budget. Edison wanted his teams to be working from the perspective of shared knowledge and, and, and leveraged capability. So this is where I think that 10x comes from also, is that beginning from a neutral point, 
gives you a much better chance of finding something and exploring rather than being wedded to someone's agenda right from the outset. Well, and the move from one to two is a special move, too. If you're sort of sitting in a room, it's kind of hard to have a an honest argument with yourself. Whereas, uh, <laughs> you know, so part of, you know, so if you, you diversity breeding kind of a, a positive environment of questioning and getting to some of the objectivity that, that he insisted upon, it just seems like that, that especially the move from one to two in larger groups, it's maybe less important, but the move from doing it yourself and getting stuck in your, your own mindset versus having someone to, to uh, bounce things off of and and make make moves or question what what you're doing from time to time is is helpful. It's very crucial, definitely. Yeah. So, so if you were to bring and and so I want to get to uh, talking a little bit about the what this all means for education and higher education in a minute. But what else should we we bring forward from from midnight lunch uh, for for people who are interested in uh, becoming more collaborative today? Well, I think uh, what I describe as the third phase of collaboration, coherence, is one of the most crucial. Uh, We were just really talking about the first phase, the capacity phase. Uh, You know, you can have the, the most extraordinary problem solvers working with you. You can have excellent communication. You can have a collegial environment. But if you don't have a sense of coherence, uh, the collaboration can fail. And really what I mean by coherence is what is the, the reason you're together? What is the purpose for your being on this project team, working to solve this problem, etc.? Uh, people need to share that sense of purpose and that sense of mission. This is an area that Edison really excelled in. He wanted to solve some of these big problems, like how do we create safe lighting? How do we uh, create new forms of entertainment? Um, are there ways to uh, create you know, documents that can be multiplied over again with, with less effort, and he yielded document duplication from that? He wanted to tackle questions that were important, but that had commercial application, that there would be a go-to-market strategy ultimately resulting from them. It wasn't like a a basic research endeavor uh, in every instance. So this notion of coherence is crucial, Uh, particularly today. We talked a bit about open innovation earlier. Um, If you're going to have partners working with you, uh, people outside your organization, people outside your institution, you know, partnering with you. Um, you. You want to be sure that you have a sense of what is in common. What are we uh, sharing here that is motivating to both of us and can have uh, positive outcomes for, for the various partners involved? I think we can lose sight of that. Yes. Uh, and and so the coherence factor can actually you know break the collaboration probably faster than than anything else. Now, and I think that and this resonates with some of our previous shows a sense of uh, in even in in situations where it's not about uh, new product development. If you're trying to change an organization, having some having that sense of mission and and shared mission among the uh, special among the uh, the, the people putting it forward is, is especially important as, uh, and, and telling essentially telling a story around it, a meaningful story is, is, is super important. Yeah. And, and as we think about, 
Yeah, and as we think about this, you know, okay, so this this just seems uh, really important for for this show. This this show is Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. And uh, you know, a short you know a shorthand for some of what's wrong with higher ed is that we should be educating the the next Steve Jobs, and and yet we seem to be turning out uh, kind of narrow specialists. Uh, that are, that were more at home in the '50s and '60s than they are in the the 2015. So, um, but maybe we should be educating the the next Thomas Edison or or his collaborators. What do you think? Well, I think sometimes this becomes a myth too that we want to be creating a Thomas Edison, creating a Steve Jobs. I think mm-hmm. what we want to do is be creating a love of learning. This is what Edison really was striving to do in his laboratories and in his manufacturing operations, is to continually learn. Um, I think we want to be uh, you know, bringing forward students uh, from our university systems and uh, you know, high school systems that are, are thirsty, they're hungry, they want to learn more, they want to find new patterns. I think actually seeing new patterns is going to be very crucial in the future. As we think about the Internet of Things, uh, you know, items that are inanimate can, can suddenly yep. have value, uh, yep. streams of activity can have value. So I think what we want is to create perhaps the mindset of a Thomas Edison, someone who was constantly looking for new applications, uh, oh. learning and applying uh, for, for commercial activity. So... It, it may not be in the form of an individual. It may be more a mindset that we need to cultivate. Well, and I, this point about a love of learning, and actually we haven't had this conversation yet, but one of the, uh, one of the elements of, um, of his uh, approach was to pursue knowledge relentlessly. What kind of learner, um, and we've got about three minutes left, but, but what kind of learner was Thomas Edison himself? Well, he loved to take different types of uh, knowledge and kind of mash them together. So he pursued mathematics. Uh, He pursued botany. Um, He was very interested in uh, mechanical things, uh, making motors. So he he would like like to see patterns and how he could kind of mash all these things up uh, together. So his ability to, you know, use his learning and kind of draw that forward in fantastical ways um, is part of what I think, you know, we, we lack in some of the, the straightforward textbook approaches that we use. Some of that pattern thinking, uh, that exploration that yeah. Edison endeavored, um, we, we can miss that today. Well, and, and, I, and thinking about some of what I read in, in the book, it, it was, um, we like to use the phrase T, T-shaped. Yes, learner. So, so broad and deep, and and there was that. There was this mashup quality, but also, when he needed to know something deep in an area, he read he read deeply in the area too to become f- familiar enough to to be able to solve the problem right. that he was. And that was the relentless, or part of the relentless quality that he had, was to go deep into a subject and then kind of spring off the different uh, patterns that he saw in that process. And that would start him off on the pattern of discovery. And so how do we, uh, you know, so what do we do? Uh, you know, so we've got, we've got kind of this education system that's, that uh, is, is working to, um, and we've got about a minute uh, before we wrap up, but um, you know, so if if we were to if we were to pull some of the lessons here for education, 
what do you think? What uh, what are the one or two key things that we might focus on? Well, I think it's important to go beyond the notion of the classroom and get into the notion of the lab. And when I say this, I mean the lab in the sense of like the Menlo Park lab, which wasn't all about science and technology. Some of it was about dialogue and conversation. Some of it was about just, you know, getting a hands-on experience with how does this machine work? So if we can create learning labs that offer a stimulus and new types of experiences for, for young learners. I think this can go a long way to setting in motion that, that pattern thinking and, and new ways of creating context that were so crucial to Edison's success. Beautiful. And, and with, with that, we're going to need to wrap up, but where can listeners go to find out more about your work or to contact you for a speaking consultation? I encourage your listeners to go to my website, which is www.powerpatterns.com and read more about uh, some of my my books that we've talked about. Uh, I also blog for Forbes, so you can Google search me at Sarah Caldecott Forbes, and that will bring you to my Forbes page. Um, I also invite you to just check out Midnight Lunch and Innovate Like Edison on Amazon. It's Great. available. Uh, they're available on Kindle and Audible.com. Thanks so much for uh, joining us, Sarah. It's been uh, fascinating. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Sarah Miller Caldecott, uh, great-grandniece of Thomas Edison, and help transform higher education by learning more at www.bigbeacon.org. Um, join us uh, next week, same time, same uh, same channel as we ex- explore the world of work uh, for higher education graduates. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.